Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. A few months ago, I was thinking a lot about how to encourage organisations to hire women over 40. The Future Women Jobs Academy was just about to launch a major new program to find 2,000 women jobs over the next three years. But as I was thinking about it, I stumbled over an article about my next guest. Barb Hyman is the founder and CEO of Sapia AI, a startup which uses artificial intelligence to help big companies find great candidates at scale. So think Woolies, where literally thousands of jobs need to be filled all the time. This is where Barb comes in. She says tech tools make resume data redundant and provide greater diversity of candidates. The business has just completed another funding round and is just about to launch in the United States. In this episode, we explore what AI can teach us about hiring your next excellent colleague. Barb, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thanks for having me. Now, look, I skipped over your impressive CV in the introduction. Perhaps you can just give us a couple of the highlights. So I think if you look at what I've done, you'd probably think I'm someone who can't make up their mind what they want to be when they grow up. My family immigrated from Africa to Perth when I was quite young. Neither of my parents went to university and I really just followed the path of my best friend who was a year ahead of me and decided to do law because my father always said I was pretty good at arguing. So that was as much science that went into that decision. And I moved from law, did an MBA, was lucky to get a scholarship, a full scholarship to Melbourne Business School and didn't really know what I wanted to do, but that created the opportunity to go and work in entirely new careers that I had never heard of, such as management consulting. So I took a job at BCG in Melbourne and I was there for about 10 years on and off. And I think that's a testament to just the incredible quality of people that are drawn to those organisations and that they're very values driven in terms of how they think about who they want to hire and how they manage the business. And from then, when I had young kids, one of the things in consulting that's quite exhausting is the travel. And Australia is a mighty big country and I wanted to be more at home when my kids were younger. So I ended up then moving into the head of HR and marketing role for BCG, which again was something I'd never done and I didn't really have any practitioner experience. And from there was then headhunted in to be the CHRO of the REA group by Tracy Fellows, who had come from Microsoft and wanted to really change up the culture and wanted a leader who was going to help drive that for her. And she's someone that I learned a lot from and in large part the role was to work with her. That was my first exposure to digital and what I saw both there and at BCG in terms of the challenges around people and talent and hiring was really what motivated me to start this business. So 
Right now I'm really in sales, but I can tell you that no one would ever give me a job in sales if they looked at my resume, which is why we believe that the resume should die because it doesn't really reveal the potential of what people can do with their lives. So before we talk about your fascinating business, can you outline some of the common mistakes that people make when hiring? I mean, you just touched on a bit of that then. So mirror hiring is really the term that I like to use. You know, we can't help it as humans. We are innately biased. It's a it's a core human condition and most of those biases are unconscious. And the easiest way for us to shortcut to a decision is to reference something that we're familiar with, which means that if I'm sitting across from you, Helen, and you're female and you might be a similar age to me and maybe you've got some similar experiences, I'm much more likely to connect with you and more likely to assume that you're going to be a great hire, which is why we call it mirror hiring. I'd say the same concept exists in the venture capital world. I call it mirror investing which is why we have so little money that's dedicated towards female founders is because we all tend to gravitate towards and feel more comfortable with the things that we know. So that's probably the greatest challenge in hiring. I think the other is to assume that the human always knows best. You know, I think that humans are really important to anything that involves people, but what we often miss, you know, it's based on the own, our own prism of experience. So if you haven't seen something before, we're just not used to trusting it. And so the ability of something like AI to be able to canvas potential in a way that we humans just can't see it, you know, is pretty exciting. But I think, yeah, that's the main challenge in hiring is we tend to, to go with our own image. Is there a question that's commonly asked that makes you cringe going, do not ask that. It's either racist or sexist or it's unhelpful. Or you're going to get a really bad candidate if you ask that question. Yeah, look, it's... um. It's interesting, you know, our product is all about a structured interview and the right question is just so important. I think the ones that used to grate on me when I was applying for consulting jobs are those esoteric problem-solving questions like how many tennis balls are there in the world? And what they're really trying to test is not whether you know the answer because the answer doesn't matter. It's your way of structuring that problem and breaking it down and how do you do some quick and dirty maths in your head. But I always found that surely there's a way to test that by asking a question that actually relates to the world around us or something that they might be interested in. I think the more that you can anchor a question and any conversation and something that's familiar to someone, they're going to be better and more comfortable with that. I think the other one is the, um, what animal would you be? You know, and you're sitting there thinking, well, if I say a meerkat, how are they going to interpret that? If I say a lion, are they going to think I'm too aggressive as a female? You know, you, you end up getting lost in worry, in, in worry about all the unintended consequences of the animal that you choose. Is there a good animal? Like, is there just a, a fail-safe animal, like a baby owl or something? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I just recommend not asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for the cheat's answer to that difficult, painful question. What sort of leader are you? I am a work-in-progress leader. I think there are different leaders for different contexts, and the context that I'm in now I feel good about the leadership traits that I bring, which is someone who has the confidence to take risks and to make decisions really quickly and to pick myself up from the things that don't go well really quickly. I'm ultimately a, a problem solver, so I always start with the problem and then figure out what are the different ways to solve that. I don't start with the people. And so I have learned that there are some contexts where that's not going to work. People obviously always matter in any organisation, but in some cultures, they matter more. There's a saying that I think Stephen Covey came up with, which is, I don't care what you know until I know that you care. And when I was at REA, truthfully, that was very strong as a cultural trait. 
that what mattered more to anyone in the business was that you really cared for them. And yet I was brought in on an agenda of driving change and creating a performance culture and a culture of accountability. And there was a clash. And I had to learn a lot around leading, you know, alongside people rather than through people and to temper my desire to fix problems and to approach things from the, you know, the thinking side of my brain. So what I would say as a leader, I'm, I think I'm fit for the role that I'm in right now, but I know that in different contexts, I may not be the right leader. But most of all, I'm a work in progress. I absolutely love that answer. And it's the first time I've ever had that response. Can I just ask, if you went into a culture where caring mattered and you were bringing in a high performance culture and that clash, how did you resolve that? Because I'm assuming that it is possible that you can be caring and high performing. But where someone puts more weight on the caring aspect of their skill set, then the high performance component is going to be a shock. What happened? Yeah, look, I definitely think they're not mutually exclusive. What happened was I had a fair bit of coaching from my boss. I learned a lot from her. And one of the things that her and a mentee of hers said to me is, you know, to frame the conversation that you're about to have with someone and uh, around, you know, positive intent. So the reason I'm having this conversation is I really believe in you. I want this to be a really successful project that we both work on and we both feel great about, but I'm worried about these things. And I may not say them in the right way, but my intent is to really help. And so you're, you're, you're kind of giving yourself a bit of a leave pass if you stuff it up in terms of how you execute on that. That was a tactic that I learned. The other was to really invest in the connection. You know, I do think that particularly in a world where we work virtually, we're a virtual team, I talk about connection being the new culture. I think the human matters and the human connection matters even more. And so you need to invest in that. You know, it's what is a fantastic TED Talk. Margaret Heffernan, who's an amazing American woman, uh, she's on TED Talks and it's, it's all about how do you build social capital and the importance of social capital to creating trust and then trust allows you to perhaps be a little bit more driven on, you know, performance and accountability. So getting to know the people that you're working with, importantly, them getting to know you, showing vulnerability, I really believe in that as a leader, particularly in HR, and allowing yourself to be open to other people's ideas. You know, all of those are attributes that I had to invest in. We spent a lot of time in REA. We had a lot of new people in the ELT offsite just getting to know each other, storytelling, you know, that is really fundamental to building trust. What qualities do you have that gave you the confidence to start your own business? I think I don't overthink things too much. So really how I landed here was to, you know, I was just enthralled at the chance to solve the problem. You know, I really didn't think about can I do it and what's it going to take to do it. I could see a huge gap in the market, you know, not because I wanted to be a billionaire and make lots of money, but just a huge gap in terms of how things worked. You know, at REA, at one point, I hired a guy who happens to be on the extreme end of LGBTI. He wouldn't mind me saying that. Um, And he was someone who came from some big banks, big organisations. And when I shared his resume internally with the organisation, I had people in the engineering team come to me and say, 
maybe you shouldn't be so transparent about the people that you're hiring because we really don't like the corporate type here. We prefer the startup type here, which is not an unusual feedback comment to hear in startups that are kind of growing and want to retain that culture of, you know, risk-taking and, and so on. And it turned out that he did more for the organisation from a cultural perspective, a diversity perspective than I could obviously ever do and anyone previously had done. And it was an example of conscious bias. And I just felt like how many other people might miss out on opportunities just because of an assumption around who they are and how they're going to operate just because of what's on a resume. So for me, the problem and the 100-day plan that I created just got me really excited. You know, ultimately, I'm in an incredibly creative job and it's a gift to have the trust of investors to back you to bring that creativity to life. And, you know, you're doing it not as an end in itself, but as an end to solve customer problems. But I think it's that focus on solving the problem and confidence. You definitely need confidence in a startup. Like that is the number one trait that I now believe after being in this role for five years that everyone who comes in needs to have because you're, you're in the unknown. And a lot of the time you don't even know what the unknowns are, particularly in the AI space. And so you have to have that ability to, you know, keep going as long as you really believe in the mission, which for us is trying to create equity in the workplace. And, uh, you know, that focus and that confidence, I think, are the most important things to, to really drive home when we're hiring and, you know, in our, in our get-togethers. Okay, so I'm fascinated by your business. So I'm really keen to hear from you. How does it work? So look, it is really magic. And I don't know if you've read about in the last week, OpenAI has released ChatGPT, which is a chatbot that basically answers questions in a very thoughtful, human, intelligent way. And the world is captivated by it. We have effectively built something that also leverages the same science, which is the use of natural language processing, the ability to really understand people and who they are from a short conversation. It's same AI product, but completely different application and, you know, IP. And so what we're doing is we're having a chat conversation with anyone who applies for a role. It's untimed, which is really important for inclusivity. You know, we get a lot of feedback comments from people who identify with a disability saying how much more safer and comfortable they feel. It's obviously blind because it's chat. So for anyone who doesn't feel comfortable with video or with a face-to-face, -face, it's more inviting to them. So you see increased diversity. But most importantly, it helps everyone become more intelligent. So we're measuring whether or not you're someone with the right profile of competencies, um, personality traits, communication skills, and we're doing that real time and helping clients get to the right people faster. But for the individual who's going through it, it's a completely empowering, dignifying experience. And you would never think to use those descriptors when you think about HR in general, but also applying for a job. Everyone learns. Every single person who goes through it gets this profile that helps them understand their strengths and weaknesses and gives them coaching. And that for me is the incredible power that AI can bring. People often talk about AI is something that's going to diminish the human experience. This is AI that gives people agency. It's AI for good that really helps people understand themselves. You know, one level on which I think of our tech is we're raising the collective self-awareness of humanity. You know, 2 million people, 47 countries. It is extraordinary how this helps people understand themselves. 
Most of us don't. And if you come from a place of understanding, you can make better decisions about everything, starting with whether this is the right job for you. Okay, so I am a 40-plus woman going for a job at a big company. What's my first interaction with your service or product? So you would typically apply through a careers page and you would get to the chat experience very quickly. It would say just before that, hey, Helen, in our organisation, we believe that everyone should get a fair opportunity at the job, so we interview everyone. Take your time. We don't want to make this a stressful experience. We want to make it a really engaging, empowering experience. And the best thing is you're going to learn about yourself when you're finished. Click here to start. And then you go into it, and the kind of questions are questions that you would ask in an interview, like you're asking me now. Tell me about a time in your life that you had to lean in and solve a problem that was really hard. What did you learn from that? Can you share an example of an incredible team that you worked on? You know, what was your contribution to that? So there are open-ended questions. We call them behavioural or situational judgment questions that really ask of you to reflect on you and your past. And what's so interesting is when we first started five years ago, we do a lot of work with businesses that are hiring at scale, a lot of low-skilled, unskilled people and with students as well. And the market was really dumbing down that group. They really challenged us and said, they're not going to respond. They won't have the ability to articulate themselves. They won't care. They just want to pick a box, which is the traditional way in which you apply for a job. And whether it's in the carer community, where there's obviously a lot of people with English as a second language or Woolworths, lots of 15-year-olds and Bunnings, you know, first and last job, right, older people as well, People find it incredible to be able to share their story. And to me, what we've really triggered with this is this, this sort of whole movement in humanity, I think, to, to be heard, to be understood. And that's really what we've, what we've sort of captivated with the product. All right. So I have that chat. Then what happens? Then within about five minutes, it's only about five questions, questions like that. You're going to receive an email that says, hey, Helen, we learned some things about you. Learning is growth. We hope this, you will find this useful and you will get a, an email that has six strengths and a coaching tip. From both of those experiences, the chat and the feedback, you'll be invited to share feedback, which we track really closely. Something like 97% of people say the chat is comfortable, easy, simple, intuitive, and they agree with the feedback that they're getting and that it increases their self-awareness and motivation. From a company perspective, what happens is if a 1,000 people have applied or 100,000 have applied, they can go into their system, which is normally something like a workday, and look at top to bottom who are the highest ranked candidates. But more than that, they can then click on everyone's score to understand why, which is just so important when you're using AI around people is you have that high level of explainability. And so I'll click on your profile and it will tell me that if you were scored 80, what are your strengths, what are your gaps? It'll have your interview responses. So if I am going to interview you at this final stage, which is typical, I get to really understand you and how you responded to that. So you feel like when we have that conversation, I know you already. It'll also guide me on the right interview questions to ask, because at this point, you want to make sure that I am really personalizing that test at that final stage, that I don't ask my silly question like, what animal would you be? So we call that data-driven interview questions and it'll give me a snapshot of your personality, strengths and weaknesses. And so that really becomes the new resume. That is what hiring managers, people leaders are looking at to understand you 
to really probe more deeply and then to make that final decision about whether you're the right person for the role. What can you tell us then about existing hiring practices? I am going in to hire people tomorrow. I'm doing an interview in the old traditional way. What lessons have you learned about how we have always conducted interviews and hiring processes? Well, firstly, that the resume is really a very useless piece of data. I can easily fudge my resume. Anyone who's a smart graduate is doing that every day in order to make it through the resume pass, as they call it. And there is enormous amounts of research, Harvard and elsewhere, that says that the experience you have is not going to be predictive of your performance in the role. And in a world of chat GPT, one of the things that's clear from that is that the whole of humanity's knowledge base now is going to level up because it can make everyone access knowledge in a way that today is probably limited to those with certain advantages. Um, We're going to have to be smarter, but the people side of us as humans is going to become much more important. And so what really matters, which you can't see in a resume, is you, is your level of drive. Are you someone that's going to be an inspiring leader? Are you going to be able to look around corners and take your team with you? Are you someone that can solve problems in a really ambiguous setting? Are you someone that's got the maturity and the resourcefulness to deal with really difficult customers? You know, those human skills, those soft skills or the power skills are really what's so important now as we go forward into a world where technology can do so much of the automated functions. And you don't see that in a resume. And I think that is the big gap in interviewing is it's very hard for us as humans to appropriately measure and judge that. It is invisible in a resume, but yet that's the most important skill set going forward. Just to, you know, to talk about the opportunity from using AI. I mean, at the end of the day, AI is just data. So people worry about the bias from AI, but at the end of the day, it reveals the bias because it measures what's going on internally. So for all of our clients, they can see what is the ethnic diversity of your talent pool? What is the ethnic diversity of the people that you're hiring? Where are you biased in your hiring? Where are you hiring more or less than your fair share? It is now visible. Like when in an organisation do you ever get that level of transparency around preferences or bias in hiring? So the power of using AI is not just about automation, efficiency and, you know, an amazing experience for candidates where everyone learns, no one is ghosted, but it's about data intelligence to help build, you know, more awareness as leaders to be able to showcase to the organisation, look, it looks like we're not doing as well as we can when it comes to leaders in New South Wales versus, you know, leaders in the rest of the country. So there's enormous transparency that comes from leveraging AI, i.e. data. And I've always been a believer in organisations that the way you build trust in your cultures is through transparency. So I think it's actually a cultural aid as much as it is an efficiency benefit. What about other measures of balance in a team. And I'm thinking specifically around the introverts versus the extroverts. Do you look at that kind of measure and go, well, your organization's already, it's got 80%. I remember hearing about, I don't know what the company was, where they only ever hired extroverts Mm. and then realize that, no, 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 that's, that's a disaster. Do you look at any of those other sort of markers? So we evolve the product to be something that's actually informed by genuine performance signals, we call them. So we start with, here's a profile of what the organisation believes is necessary for success, which is based on management. It's a human in the loop process. We want people who are extroverts 
great team players, smart thinkers, etc. We then look at, okay, well, you're hiring this type and it's either similar or not to the profile that you thought you were going to be looking for. But the real key is who's performing. The challenge in looking at performance data is, do you actually have any objective performance data? So for organisations like retail, it's very easy because time in role is a very good proxy for performance. If someone never turns up or they only stay three weeks when the median tenure is six months, there's something in that, right, that it hasn't actually been the right hire for the organisation. Sales is another one, contact centres, where it's very easy to get truly objective performance data at the individual level. And what's really interesting when you start to follow through is you get the true profile of performance. And in the context of sales, for instance, what we've seen with all of our clients who are using us for sales hiring is the recruiters love the extroverts, the people who tell a good story, who are really charming, who are turn up, you know, with lots of energy. But actually, the real sales performers are introverts. And it's not until you start to show them that profile relative to, you know, sales productivity and sales traction that they start to believe that maybe they're wrong about their biases in terms of what makes for a great salesperson. That's just one example, but think about all the different parts of organisations where, you know, there's just an assumption, like even myself, that I'm not going to be good at sales because I've never done sales. I mean, the fact is talent is evenly distributed, opportunity is not, and there is just pervasive systemic bias, sometimes conscious, mostly unconscious when it comes to making decisions around people. You know, why don't we have equality when it comes to men and women in CEO roles or in board roles or in leadership roles? It's not because women are less talented or they don't have the attributes. It's because we're relying on humans to make those decisions. And we are tragically, systemically biased in the way that we do that, you know. And and, and that for me is really what needs to change because organisations are missing out on talent and many people are missing out on amazing careers. Let's talk a little bit more about you You've said a couple of times that you're basically in sales and you didn't ever imagine you'd be in sales. I have some understanding of what that feels like. I started out life as a journalist. I feel like I'm in sales. What, is that, what does that mean to you though? It's listening. It's, it's listening to understand. It's empathy. It's problem solving, right? Like I'm across the table with heads of HR seeking to understand like what are your most, you know, biggest pain points? Like what is that costing you and your team? What is that costing the business? And so there's curiosity in sales. There's what well, clearly problem solving, right? You're not necessarily doing that in the first core. You're continuously probing and asking questions to better understand them, where the organisation is at from a maturity perspective in my context, as well as, you know, what are the biggest pain points and how aligned are they to the business? And often you find that the organisation doesn't really take time out to do that themselves. You know, everyone is just so head down, moving so fast and just asking simple questions like, how would you measure success in talent acquisition? How do you know if you're doing a great job of it for the business? And when they say certain metrics and you challenge, you go, why is that the metrics that matters? Like, let's talk about how does the business make money? So, you know, I think HR is still learning to be commercial. I think HR probably you know, is still learning to be technology-led. You don't typically go into HR to work with tech, you go into HR to work with people, but that's fundamentally changing because HR now is about managing data and managing people. So you need a skill set and a profile that covers both of those. And, you know, in a way we're sort of at the forefront of that because we're the bridge between HR data and business data. And so we're kind of accelerating their own maturity levels around, you know, HR complexity 
and the leverage of data um, through through using our system. All right, this is a quick fire question. Many of the people listening today will hire in a traditional way. What advice do you have for them? Use a structured interview approach. That is well regarded as the most accurate, most defensible way of hiring, and that means that you design the questions around what the attributes are for the role. You have multiple people who do that from a calibration perspective, so you can check your own biases. Definitely have one up um, as part of that process because your manager will always see you in a way that you won't see yourself and they'll always see the space, you know, with a very strategic lens. And, you know, make sure that you've got a set of performance measures against which you're assessing their answers, that you're not just relying on your gut instinct in how people respond, but you've actually got different categories that you're using to assess. In BCG days, it was problem solving and insight communication and presence, effectiveness and leadership. Think about what they are for you in the role and use that as a rubric against which you're assessing their structured interview answers. And don't use a resume. (laughs) (laughs) I love you don't use a resume because I'm terrible at reading them. No one's time is served well by reading resumes, particularly recruiters. No, I've gone back. I've hired someone and then gone back and looked at the resume, gone, what did they put in their resume? And of course, you know, found something that confirms whatever I was looking for. I bet you've had to fire, retrench, make redundant your fair share of people. Do you ever get good at it? I think you get better at it. I think it's a really important skill to learn, like not one you obviously want to throw people into, but it definitely um, matures you. And this is advice that Tracy, my boss at REA, gave me, which is, Imagine that you're sitting across and talking to, I've got three kids, you know, so it might be my eldest son, Connor, and you're sharing this message about them leaving the business and visualise them and use language that you would use if you were saying that to your own child. That was the most powerful piece of advice I'd ever had. I'm thinking rationally, this role is not right for the person, they're going to be so successful somewhere else. At the end of the day, it's their journey and it's incredibly confronting to have that conversation. So I think you know, visualise someone that you care deeply about and love unconditionally and then frame the conversation around that. And just finally, what's the end game? When you think about all the work you put into building this business, and I know this, that everyone keeps telling you, you have to have an exit strategy. It's funny what you learn as a startup, right? All the things that people tell you all the time. Yeah, I need an exit strategy. What is the exit strategy? What's the end game? What does success look like? Look, with my rational hat on, I would say that there's going to be a point where this company and its IP is worth a lot more to someone else than it is to us, you know, from the perspective of being able to monetize the product and the data science and all the IP. But for now, we feel like we're just very early in our journey of bringing, you know, a genuine human empowering experience all through the value chain from when you first apply to when you leave. Um, I think that HR is very much stuck in a a sort of a 90s time warp. It's very top-down. It's very sort of patriarchal in a way, very system-led, and it's missing the people side. You know, is there anyone you know in an organisation that loves going into the the HR system? There just isn't. So the chance to really reinvent that and put the power and knowledge in the hands of the individual and have them shape their journey through the organisation, that's what really excites me not the organisation define who's right for the next role. I think you need to really invest in the human and the individual 
that's what we've started with hiring and we want to keep going until we've figured out how to do that from their last day on the job. Bob, absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Utterly riveting. Congratulations on what you've already built and I really look forward to watching uh, the success of the company and how you revolutionise the lives of people who go into the hiring process. It's exciting to hear about and thank you for sharing. Thanks, Helen. And look, if anyone wants to experience it, you can go on our website. It's for free and you can try the experience and see what you learn about yourself. So please feel free to do that. I'm going to go and do it straight away. (laughs) Thank you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 